Welcome back to our study on St. Paul's letter to the Romans. I'm your host, Kale Clark, right here on the Faith Explained program on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. We're in chapter 16, and Paul is greeting a whole bunch of people in the church at Rome that he has never visited. He's never met them before, but he's kind of laying the groundwork for his future visit. I want to introduce you to somebody who you have heard of before. This is so neat, and this just brings it back to the reality of the Christ, the reality of the gospel. This is what St. Paul says in chapter 16, verse 13. Greet Rufus, eminent in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Now, that, that, now it doesn't mean that Rufus's mother is actually Paul's mother. <clears throat> He's simply saying that Rufus's mom was like a mom to him, and they had, obviously, very close relationship. She had done something for Paul in the past. And this is the same Rufus, by the way, I think. Some people dispute this, but I, I don't really know on what grounds. It's got to be. The same Rufus referred to in Mark chapter 15, verse 21. So let's just flip over open to the Gospel of Mark. And, and this is obviously the famous Rufus, who was the son of somebody even more famous, Simon of Cyrene. Now, this is what it says in Mark chapter 15, verse 21. The passion of the Christ is in view here, obviously. All right, Mark 15, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, this is something that Roman soldiers were allowed to do. Uh, they could grab anybody out of the crowd and, and conscript them into service at a, for a temporary uh, time period. And so Simon's just kind of minding his own business. He's there for the big feast, of course. And his sons, Rufus and Alexander, are known to the Romans. Simon, of course, probably went home to his heavenly reward. But this unexpected meeting with the cross, he wasn't looking for this, did not know but Jesus and his cross were seeking him out, and it changed his life. And it's a beautiful, beautifully depicted, by the way, in the film, The Passion of the Christ, with Mel Gibson. Thinking about what that must have been like. And what's kind of interesting is that, as St. Jose Maria Escrivá said, in our lives, it's kind of the flip side of that, because we have to carry our crosses, but Jesus helps us carry our cross. Jesus, in a sense, becomes our Simon of Cyrene to make our crosses a little bit lighter. And so, remember Mark's gospel was also written to Rome. That's where Peter was headquartered. It's written essentially primarily to the church at Rome. So that's why Mark mentions these guys, Alexander and Rufus. Why does he mention that Simon of Cyrene was the father of Alexander and Rufus? Who cares who his kids are? Well, they do care because they know those kids. They are now in the church at Rome. Obviously, this was the conversion point for Simon of Cyrene. So again, this personal touch uh, becomes very, very, uh, kind of in 3D, almost jumps off at the page. that These are real people. These aren't fictional people that we're reading about here. So back, back to Romans 16, uh, we have this as well. The next thing that St. Paul says, and Paul goes on to say in, in uh, chapter 16, verse 14, greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren who are with them, greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. 
Hey, maybe maybe Catholic parents should go back to some of these biblical names. They're pretty cool names, and let's make let's make these names prominent once again. And then he says in verse sixteen, "Greet one another with a holy kiss." All the churches of Christ greet you. Well, I, I don't recommend doing that uh, these days when you <laughs> go into your local parish. Don't greet everybody with a holy kiss. They probably won't appreciate it, or uh, you might be slapped with a lawsuit. Uh, really what's going on here is this is essentially the precursor to what's known as the sign of peace in the liturgy. So it's a sign of affection, obviously, amongst the believers. And it wasn't, it was very culturally appropriate back then. It still is in some culture, cultures. Think of uh, the Italian culture, very, very appropriate for people to greet one another with a kiss on the cheek. But you got to be aware of what company you're in. And this kiss of peace really, again, it's a sign of the historicity of the Mass, the liturgy. And St. Justin Martyr actually mentions the kiss of peace when he writes to the Roman Emperor in his first apology. And this is uh, written around 149, 150 AD. He kind of lays out the Mass, and he's basically explaining to the Roman Emperor <clears throat> that uh, Catholics are not cannibals, uh, we're not bad citizens, we pray for the Emperor, we pray for everybody who's in power understanding that our primary primary loyalty is to the kingdom of God. But he kind of lays out the Mass and explains it, because there were all kinds of misunderstandings about what Catholics did. People thought they were cannibals, uh, that they even killed babies and ate them. There were all kinds of rumors uh, going on about what they did in their private worship, the Mass, again, not being public at that time. But this is what he says. I'm just going to read you a little selection here. And it's amazing, because it's essentially the same layout as the Mass today. Quote, but we, after thus baptizing the one who has been convinced and has assented, this is Justin Martyr talking again, lead him to those who are called brethren, where they are assembled and we offer prayers in common for ourselves and for the one who has been illuminated. And this is the, the person who's been baptized. They call it the illumination. And for all others everywhere. These are the prayers of the faithful that we may be accounted worthy, having learned the truth by our deeds, also to be found good citizens and guardians of what is commanded, so that we may receive eternal salvation. Having ended the prayers, we greet one another with a kiss. This is the kiss of peace. And again, it's been replaced in modern times by you know, a nod, maybe a, a throw up the peace sign, or you can shake the hands of your neighbors in the pews. Didn't during COVID times, but you can kind of go back to it now, I guess. And... It's, he says, then there is brought to the ruler of the brethren, or the president, this is the person who's presiding over the mass, the priest or the bishop, bread and a cup of water and a cup of wine mixed with water. And taking them, he sends up praise and glory to the Father of the universe through the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and offers thanksgiving at some length for our being accounted worthy to receive these things from him. Now, essentially, this is the Eucharistic prayer, this offering of thanksgiving. Uh, Eucharistia means thanksgiving. And so uh, Justin then goes on to describe the Eucharist. But it, it's very incredible to read this mid-2nd century, uh, that the Mass is essentially the same as it is today, that bread is brought and then a cup of wine mixed with water. And priests and bishops still do this when they celebrate Mass. They put a little drop of water uh, in the in the wine before it's consecrated, the wine representing the divinity of Christ, and the water, of course, his humanity, the incarnation. So this is just uh, beautiful stuff here. And that's kind of the 
the end of uh, this little section in Romans. And then we have the final section coming up. But just um, a couple of quick uh, comments. Uh, when we look at the, this list of names, you never thought they were so important, but th- this shows what a, what a mixed crowd it was in, in the early church. Uh, some of them Gentiles. Most of them in Rome at this point were Gentiles. Uh, some of them were Jewish. Some of them, that's why Paul calls them his relatives. He doesn't really mean relatives. He means their kinsmen. Their fellow Jews. Some of them were slaves. Some of them were slaves who had been set free, the so-called freedmen. And there's households. Uh, there, there are people who had uh, means, people who are somewhat wealthy. Uh, think about, of course, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, they, they had, well, they had lots of travel points. They, they traveled around the empire. They were people of means. I guess their tent making business did pretty well. They made great tents, waterproof. And they were able to move around and help Paul a lot. And they, the fact that they had a house big enough for a congregation to meet, or at least part of the Roman church to meet there. They all met in house churches, by the way, no public buildings of the church. Shows that they had means. So it was kind of a, a mixed socioeconomic bag, but I would say that most of them were probably of the lower economic classes. And Paul says elsewhere, now he's writing to the Corinthians, but I think it's probably the same in Rome. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential not many were of noble birth. So they, they came from kind of humble backgrounds there. And um, we'll, t- we'll take a look at the house churches later on in a Q&A session of what they're really like. But again, um, of note, and we talked about this before, um, many women involved in the church. There is Phoebe, the deaconess. It doesn't mean she was an ordained deacon. She wasn't. But she had a role of service in the church, probably because she was wealthy and was able to serve the church with her financial means. And she was able to be a good organizer, maybe had a house church as well, a home that could uh, people could meet in. There are also many other women that were mentioned here. And one of the things that, that um, people sometimes forget is that uh, they say the Catholic Church is being biased towards women by not uh, letting them be ordained. Uh, it's an impossibility, as the popes have affirmed in recent years. Uh, ordination is for men. It's not because the church is being discriminatory. The greatest saint of all time in the church is, of course, a woman, uh, Mother Mary. And the other thing we have to understand as well is that among all the other religions that were out there in the Roman Empire in the first century, at the time of Jesus, only Judaism, and of course the Catholic Church as well, an extension of Judaism, Judaism with the Messiah, as it were. Only Judaism and the Catholic Church did not have female priests. There were female priests in Jesus' day, in in all the pagan cults and all these other groups. So there were priestesses, if you will, in his time. And as uh, the great scholar Peter Crave, friend of the program, likes to say, that if you were saying that Jesus didn't pick women as priests because he thought you know, it would rock the boat too much in a patriarchal society or he was afraid to offend people, then what you're really doing when you say that is that you are accusing the sinless Son of God of the sin of sexism. That, that's, that's a pretty serious accusation. Jesus was not afraid to uh, upset the apple carter or tick off religious authorities. We know this. Uh, he was not a respecter of persons in that sense. Just the, the fact that Jesus had women disciples, that was, that was unheard of before he did that. So Jesus um, understands the, the worth uh, of women in the church for sure. 
And uh, Galatians 3.28, this is a passage, again, written by St. Paul in another letter. People misunderstand this greatly as well. Uh, let me just read this to you very quickly. So in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, here's what it says. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So when people read that, they think, well, what's the problem? If we're all equal in Christ, why can't women be priests or, or deacons or bishops? There's neither male nor female. Well, it doesn't mean that, that maleness or femaleness is not important, these distinctives. What this is, this, this is um, when Paul says is we're equal in terms of our status in Christ. As human beings created in the image of God, we're, we're equal in status, but we're not equal in function or role. And again, to quote Dr. Peter Craved, he says, In the church, only boys can be the daddies and only girls can be the mommies. You know, like be a, a mother superior, if you will, in the religious order. Spiritual motherhood is very, very important as well as spiritual fatherhood. And so the reason why um, it's an all-male priesthood is not because there aren't women who would be better preachers than men. There would be a heck of a lot of maybe better preaching in a lot of churches if women could do that. Um, think about the great women theologians of our time. Uh, they've certainly got the intellectual goods, like Dr. Tracy Rowland uh, from Australia, great theologian. Um, Dr. Josephine Lombardi, my friend who teaches at the uh, St. Augustine Seminary in Toronto, Canada. Uh, great scholars, great teachers, but the priest is acting in persona Christi. The church is the bride of Christ collectively, and the priest is in the person of Christ, who is male. He says, this is my body, this is my blood, in confecting the Eucharist. Of course, Jesus speaking through the vocal cords of the priest. And so that, that dichotomy would be, uh, the bride-bridegroom analogy would be marred uh, if, if, if it were possible for women to be priests. But, that, but it's not a discriminatory, discriminatory thing. And the church has done more for women and women's rights than any organization in the history of the world. First of all, insisting on the permanence of marriage. Women were often cast aside in the ancient world. Uh, easy divorce. Jesus was very upset about this. It's one of the reasons why he, he said, you know, no divorce. Absolutely not. Uh, marriage is for life, a valid marriage. Uh, people would get rid of their wives routinely uh, for scurrilous reasons, spurious reasons, and they would be cast aside, and, and it would be a bad, bad deal. Unfortunately, you couldn't get a job back then. You couldn't just educate yourself and start a career, start a business back then as a woman in the first century. Pope, think about women who were the first CEOs in the world, often Catholic nuns who were directing hospitals. Think about Mother Cabrini and all the work that she did in the United States. But also, uh, the writings of St. John Paul II, when he wrote about the dignity of women, he wrote a, a document called Mulieris Dignitatem, on the dignity of women. I remember my wife, before we were married, she and her friends would, would get together weekly to study that document. They would call it Muli Night, because they were studying Mulieris Dignitatem. And so there's lots of great, great wisdom there to be gleaned, and he talked a lot about the feminine genius that's so needed in the church. Uh, Dr. Alice von Hildebrand, a great theologian as well, wrote a, a wonderful book called On the Privilege of Being a Woman, and people can check that out. She actually, interestingly, co-wrote a book with Dr. Peter Kreeft on women and the priesthood. Sadly, it's out of print, so if you can ever find a copy, uh, grab it. It's really well done from both 
uh, a woman's perspective and, a, and the perspective of Dr. Kraft as well. So I, I simply mention that as a sidebar, but we, we do see in general, it's a mixed bag. Women, men, Jew, Gentile, rich, and poor, although mostly Gentile, mostly poor. Uh, in our own time, Pope Francis has said that he wants a poor church for the poor. It, it, and that is exactly what we see here in Rome. A lot of them were slaves or former slaves. And as, as Dr. Doug Moo notes, it's often those who feel the most alienated in our world that are open to find status in the world to come, in the kingdom of God. And that's certainly true. And that's that's one of the reasons why the church has has often appealed to people because of the dignity that we have in Christ. We have this new identity in Christ. He sees us not as the world sees us. But don't forget, these uh, people of means that God had given them as well that were in the church, not only is the church for the down and out, economically speaking, it's also for the up and out as well, because those who are wealthy, those who've been given these means, they have, the, I guess, the advantage of knowing that money, social status, wealth, they know that they don't satisfy. Think about all the unhappy celebrities that are out there and wealthy people who, who, who just seem who realize that the meaninglessness of life, unless they turn to God, they very often turn to drugs, to drink, to vice, and nothing seems to satisfy. St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. So all of these things are really in play here. As we see this uh, motley crew, as it were, this mixed bag, of people within the church, but this is real life. These are real people. These are the Christians that Paul is writing to, and so he has a responsibility towards them. So the next session should be our last session in this series. Paul is going to give some final instructions, a word of exhortation, a word of glory. It's called the doxology, uh, somewhat like we have at the end of the Our Father. It's not really part of the prayer, but we uh, say it, Mass, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, he's going to sign off in a very, very powerful way and tie things all together in the letter to the Romans, the greatest letter that has ever been written on the face of the earth by the greatest apostle of all time, the goat, the apostle Paul. Wow, it's just an amazing journey, and I'm so glad that you've been on the journey with me here on The Faith Explained. And by the way, great time to mention uh, if you want to share this program with someone else, the best way to do that is by downloading the relevant radio app, and you can share these programs in the archives. You can look at each show, and you can easy share features. It's just a little square with an arrow coming out of it. You can share the podcast with a friend. You can email it. You can text it to them. Great way to share. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, people like to get locked in. Um, no problem. Just give us a rating and review so that it helps people to find us here as we seek to bring the word of Christ to the world through the media. I'm Kale Clark, and this is The Faith Explained, but don't go away. Right now, we've got our Q&A mailbag to open up, and I can't wait to do that with you. So let's go ahead and do that. All right, as we open up our Faith Explained Q&A mailbag right now, I want to remind you that you can email me. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. Dot com. You can also find me on the X app at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. Today's question comes from Angela in Long Beach, California, and she writes, Kale, thank you so much for doing St. Paul's letter to the Romans on the show. I have long wanted to study this, and I was really intrigued by your discussion of house churches. Can you give us a little bit more background on what these would have looked like on a day-to-day -day basis? 
Thank you so much, Angela. Well, thank you very much, Angela. I really appreciate you writing in. And I would say that uh, the house church phenomenon is really intriguing. And obviously, as, as we've been talking about in our series uh, with Romans, uh, there were churches in the first century that met in the homes of individual believers. That's because the church was underground for the most part, uh, not recognized by the authorities, didn't have any public buildings as they would later. And the, the term in Greek, in the original Greek of the New Testament, is oikos. You know, not uh, like oikos yogurt or anything like that, but, but oikos means house. And so oikonomia is the law of the household, the household economy, if you will. And there's lots of house churches. We, we talked about Aquila and Priscilla, how they had a church in their home, which is mentioned in Romans chapter 16, verse 3, and also in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19, uh, when uh, St. Paul writes, Aquila and Prisca, and that's her nickname, Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Philemon, you know, the book of Philemon, it's a really short book. Uh, Philemon also has a house church, if you will. And it says um, uh, in that book in Philemon, verse 2, there's no chapters, just verses in Philemon. And Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. There's also uh, a woman named Nympha in Laodicea, the lukewarm Laodiceans. And St. Paul writes in his letter to the Colossians, he mentions her. Those two cities are really close together, Colossae and Laodicea. And by the way, that's why they're called the lukewarm Laodiceans, because the the cool mountain water uh, would, would drip down like, you know, like, like you see in those Coors beer commercials, the, the mountain water would drip down from the mountains of Colossae and it would mix with the underground uh, spring water uh, from Laodicea. And it would, it would, it, the cold water and the hot water from the springs, the hot springs would mix together and be this lukewarm kind of, ugh, kind of water. And that's why Jesus says the Laodiceans are lukewarm. Um, and I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth because you're neither hot nor cold. So we don't want to be like that, but, in Colossians 4.15, Paul writes, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. So there are lots of, of homes like this. Usually there's a wealthy person who would, who would volunteer use of their home. Nympha was probably a widow. That's probably why she had a, you know, a big enough house, and very often there were servants involved as well. And everybody in the household sometimes would, would take part because it was very traditional that if someone became a Catholic, the entire household would convert, like the, the jailer in Philippi. He converts, has baptized his whole household, including all the servants, not, not only just his uh, wife and kids. And that's where they would celebrate the Mass. And we have this uh, beautiful, beautiful passage in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2. So I'm just going to look this up for you. In Acts, chapter 2, verse 42, famous verse, talks about the early converts who were baptized after Pentecost, and they held steadfastly to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. And really, that's a description of the Mass. The apostles' teaching, we get that when we read uh, the New Testament especially, contains the teaching of the apostles at Mass, the Liturgy of the Word, the fellowship, the fellowship that we have with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, the breaking of the bread, that's obviously a euphemism for the Eucharist, and to the prayers, prayers of the faithful, the Eucharistic prayers. Uh, prayer is a big deal in the church. And so it's, a, it's an incredible description of what life was like for the early believers. A couple of verses later, Acts 2.46, it 
It says, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Yeah, it's true that uh, the early believers, all being from a Jewish background, would still, for a while, they would hang out in the temple as well. And maybe they try to preach to their fellow Jews after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. That was no longer possible some decades later. But they would meet house by house. And so th- this is a, a big deal here. Um, we see in the New Testament the house church model. And in fact, in the evangelical Christian world, and I was a part of this for, for quite some time before I came back into the Catholic Church, there was a huge movement to try to recapture the house churches of the New Testament. And some congregations wouldn't even have a meeting house or, or some sort of a, a building for Sunday worship. They, they just went 100% to the quote-unquote house church model, where the people would meet in various homes, you'd be divided up and you'd belong to a certain house church group, and everybody would, would on Sundays get together and watch the pastor deliver a talk on a big screen. And it would be beamed in from somewhere else. <laughs> it's kinda, I don't think the early Christians did that part. But it became a big, big deal. And even in, in the Catholic world, this idea of home groups, it, it's not necessarily a bad thing because, as we know, we come together as a, a bigger body in our local cities and towns uh, for Mass every Sunday and indeed for daily Mass as well, if possible. But sometimes we need something a little bit more personal outside of corporate worship. And we can have Bible studies. We can have... Uh, small groups of some sort where we, where we meet to, to learn the faith at some at some level. Those are good things, I think. We need to almost have wheels within wheels in the church because it adds that sort of personal touch, accountability, uh, real friendships can develop that sometimes it's hard to do on a Sunday morning when everybody's coming and going. And some parishes there are, you know, five, six, seven, eight masses on a Sunday. So uh, there's no real time to, to, to hang out and, and, and build those friendships there. So that's that's a little uh, depiction of what was going on, people's homes, and it seems like they would have a love feast, they would have a, a big meal together, and then at some point uh, they would celebrate the Eucharist. I guess they would celebrate the Eucharist first, so hey, the communion fast, right? Um, but St. Paul does talk about people bringing food, people bringing songs, people bringing hymns, people bringing music, and there was often a lot of encouraging, preaching, um, little talks that were given uh, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in one of these house churches uh, with St. Paul coming to visit in the first century world. All right, great question. And if you have a question, you can send it in to me as well. The email address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. I'm your host, Kale Clark. This is The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. We'll catch you in the next episode. Share the podcast with a friend. I'll be back later today at 5 p.m. Central for the live Kale Clark show. You can call in. And coming up next on Relevant Radio, it's Father Simon Says.